This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. We will also explore threats to meaningful engagement in sport and movement culture practices and ask questions about what we can learn about the human condition through our involvement in sport. The guests are leading scholars in human and social sciences of sport who share their explorations in a scholarly as well as a personal context. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. In today's episode, we will explore an intriguing question. What makes sport meaningful when it is so trivial? We cannot survive without food and shelter, but we can clearly survive without sport. And if sport is trivial, should we take it seriously? And how seriously? I am very excited to introduce today's guest, who will help us tackle these interesting questions. She is a reader in applied philosophy at the University of Gloucestershire, who enjoys wrestling with the deep and difficult questions about sport. Her research explores a range of philosophical and ethical issues in sport, And, in addition to these issues, she also teaches in areas of philosophy of science, critical thinking, and the logic of arguments. Welcome, Emily. So good to have you here today. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yes, when I got in touch with you and and asked you to talk about sport and meaning, and, and you came back to me with this idea about talking about seriousness of sport, or should it be serious if it's also so trivial at the same time? And I'm doing a quite, of, quite a lot of qualitative research myself, and many athletes have told me that sport is the most important, unimportant thing. And that's something that came up as recently as last week when I was talking to an endurance athlete and, and she was reflecting on her career. So maybe that's something that we can start exploring a little bit. Why is sport important if it's also very unimportant? I think it all comes back to this question about what makes a good life. Um, I mean, I think most questions come back to the question about what's a what's a life worth living, um, and it's obviously a question that philosophers and humans have been considering for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. Um, ever since that, they can start thinking about their own mortality. They think about, you know, what what am I here for? What is the purpose to my life? Um, and I think sport has this really paradoxical quality in the sense that it is so trivial. And we can go back, I mean, there's um, a philosopher, Canadian philosopher called Bernard Suits, and he wrote this wonderful book called The Grasshopper um, Games, Life and Utopia, where he really tried to, well, he tried to do two things in this book. And, And first thing was that he tried to define what makes a game. But the second thing was that he 
try to consider how game playing, so we can relate that to sport, how game playing um, relates to the concept of a good life. So he ended up concluding that actually uh, game playing is intrinsic to a good life, even though his definition of a game was, um, and this is a brilliant definition, he he talks about game playing as the voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. So in other words, we deliberately put um, obstacles in our way to reach a goal. So rather than trying to do it the most efficient way possible, we actually make it more inefficient. Um, so for instance, and he uses examples such as playing golf, you know, if, if the goal is to get a little white ball into a, a hole, then the most efficient way of doing that may be to, you know, to, to run over the hole to the hole and put it in there with your hand. But we don't. We try and make it inefficient by we use these kind of long clubs and we start from a you know 300 odd meters yards away and uh, we give ourselves rules that limit how efficiently we can we can reach our goal. And in that sense, it's a it's a really absurd activity because we're deliberately putting obstacles in our way to make things more difficult than they need to be. And yet. That in itself gives us it gives us meaning. It makes it a meaningful action. So I think that that is, is a is a very odd paradoxical quality in the sense that game playing and sports make things make actions inefficient. So we don't try and reach our goal in the most efficient way possible. Um, and yet it gives, as you say, you know, it gives you know many of us millions of people meaning um, at the same time. Yeah. So is it the sign that life has actually just gone? It has become too easy for us. We have to have these artificial challenges because we don't have the real ones. I think that, yeah, it, it might have... Well, I wouldn't say it's too easy because there's obviously a lot of people that find life very, very difficult. But actually, it, mm. it, I guess compartmentalizing a goal by saying, okay, well, let's, you know for something like football you say right we've got 90 minutes and over that 90 minutes we're going to see how many times we can get a ball in the back of the net only using our feet so we kind of compartmentalize particular parts of our life and I think during that time when we're focusing on that supposedly very trivial goal that gives us meaning because we're 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 able, in a way, we're able to forget about the harder parts of our lives where we think, oh, I've got to, you know, will I have enough money to pay my mortgage or um, put food on the table or I'm worrying about a sick relative. In a way, it kind of, it, it enables us to, it's a form of escapism. That part enables us to escape the rest, the mm-hmm. harder parts of life. So I wouldn't say it necessarily, life is easier. It just allows us to give meaning to our lives that we 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 realize are trivial. We recognize that that it's unimportant. But at the same time, in that moment, in that space in time, it's really important because we're doing everything we can to get a ball in the back of the net or a ball in that in a hole on a golf course. And you said that we are kind of using very inefficient means. And and the example was golf. What about sports such as running, which is like trying to come up with the most efficient running technique to run from A to B as fast and efficient as possible. Yeah, I mean, Bernard Suits, he, he does talk about running and he says, okay, well, you know, let's imagine athletics track. Uh, so you're trying to get from point A 
back to point A, so, you you know, 400 metres. So you, you, you finish where you start. Well, in a way, the most efficient way would be to not move at all. Or equally, if you're doing a 200 metres race, you just run straight across the middle of the, uh, the infield. Um, so even in running, mm-hmm. there are going to be more efficient ways. I mean, some, I guess something like a, um, a race where you really do start in one place and you finish another you could still come up with more efficient ways you could hitch mm. a lift with somebody that's have us be driving past or you could take a shortcut as many people do in their school cross-country um uh, classes so yeah I, I mean there's always more efficient ways um that you could do that activity so even you know something like the 100 meter sprint you might think well you're, do, you're getting to the finish as fast as possible. But actually, you're still limiting yourself because you're not allowed to use, you know, jet-powered roller skates, for instance. Um, you have to use your own kind of, use your own steam. Um, so, yeah, so even in something like running, you're still limiting as to yourself as to what methods or means you can use to, to reach that goal. Yeah, and actually now that we talk about it, like most of the running events... 5k 10k you run a loop and you end up in mm-hmm. the same place so nothing has been achieved in in a way exactly <laughs> um. yeah so what is it about this trivial activity and engagement that makes it then meaningful i think i mean i'd, I'd be really interested to hear what you know a psychologist might say about this because i think psychologically as i said it's a it's um it's a means of escape. It's a means of forgetting about really hard problems that you can't necessarily overcome. Um, you know, if you if you're worrying about paying your rent or if you're worrying about um, you know a sick relative, then those those are really tricky problems. Whereas actually, sport, you're kind of you're given the rules and you're told, okay, well, using these these inefficient means use you know abiding by the rules you have to reach that goal and in a way it's um you might not always be successful so in football you might not always score goals and you might concede a lot of goals but at least the rules are clear and it's and it provides you with a focus where you can see kind of a a, a way out and you know also at the same time you know that well if you lose a game it doesn't really matter you might feel a bit kind of upset or sad about it um, you might feel that you haven't played the best that you can play, but in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. And I think that's an also that's a that's something that's that athletes and sports people need to recognise because those people where actually their sport is everything to them, and they kind of lose perspective. And you know, we've all I'm sure we've all played against people that if they lose a match, that is it. They're absolutely devastated. They're gutted, and you think, "Come on, it's so it's only a game." Uh, that 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 great phrase. Um, and I think that you know, it is about keeping things in perspective and recognizing that it is only a game, and it you know, it doesn't doesn't matter if you you win or lose, as long as you you still try your best. Um, and I think that you know. Actually, that's that's where the kind of whole seriousness, non-seriousness paradox comes in. Because to play a game well, you obviously have to take it seriously. Um, you have to try mm-hmm. your best. You have to do your utmost um, within the rules. But at the same time, you also need to recognise that it's not serious. So it's that really, I think it's quite a difficult balance 
um, because you have to approach it with this attitude that it is a serious and you're trying to do everything you can within the rules to reach that goal. But at the same time, if you fail, it doesn't matter. It's you've, you, you know, in a way you'll always have another chance. Mm. So you said that it doesn't matter if you win or lose as long as you do your best. Why is it so essential that you have to be doing your best when you're playing sport? So I guess there's two ways of answering that. So on one level, if you're competing against somebody else and, you know, we might have had experiences where we've agreed, let's say, to go and play a game of tennis with a friend. And, you know, imagine if your friend is just not really into it, not really feeling it and isn't bother bothering to try. Well, that diminishes your enjoyment of the game as well, because if you're playing against somebody that isn't trying, you think, well, you know, I'm winning these points easily. It's not fun. It's not competitive. It's not enjoyable. Um, so you need to try your best, I guess, for the good of good of the game and for the other people in the competition. Um, because what makes a good competition is uh, the fact that, you know, an ideal competition would be where you've got um, competitors that really have to be at the top of their game to demonstrate the, the best of their skill um, and, you're unsure of the outcome. So um, another philosopher, Warren Fraley, talks about this sweet tension of uncertainty of outcome. This idea that the great sport is where you demonstrate excellence of skill, and that skill may be personal to you in terms of what you're able to do, but it also might be excellence in terms of kind of the rest of humanity, in terms of what is the limits of human achievement. But it's also about um, not, you know, competition is about, um having having a goal that you're trying to reach and whether that's uh, you're trying to beat somebody else in a tennis game or a, a, um, another team in a football game or whether it's about a running race or whether it's even about trying to achieve your personal best you're kind of you're not sure who's going to win you're not sure whether you're going to beat your personal best or not so that's that uncertainty of outcome so that is what makes great sport um so if you don't try your best then in a sense you're not really competing in sport. You're just, I guess you might be just going through the motions. Um, so I think, yeah, so as I say, there's kind of two levels there is that it's, it's simply just not fun for the other competitors if, you, if you're not trying. Um, but it also doesn't make for good competition either. Yeah, I'm, I've had some debates about this issue. Like, I think one of the questions that comes in is also like, what if the other side is clearly winning? Like, I'm doing martial arts myself and, and Thai boxing. And, you know, when it's a small sport and sometimes the opponent is clearly much stronger and more skillful than the other and, and they are in a competition. And so should the one who is stronger really do their best because that would result in a knockout or something like that? Yeah, that's it's a that's a really interesting question. There's been a lot of debate in the, in the literature around that as as to what is the the right or the moral thing to do in those kind of situations. Now, I guess in an ideal world, you wouldn't come up with the, that kind of unequal matches. Um, so, in an ideal world, you'd make sure that equals compete against equals. Mm. But in a small sport, it happens all the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, I mean, it came up, was it uh, last year's Women's Football World Cup when uh, I think the USA were playing, who were they playing? Um, the USA were playing, I'm trying to remember who they were playing, but they they won, set, was it 7-0 or 13-0? And 
people were saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, at, this, was, this isn't a World Cup finals and it, the, the competition was so unequally matched and people were saying, well, the USA, should, should they, you know, they shouldn't have been carrying on scoring those goals. It's really disrespectful. Imagine how the other team feels. But at the same time, you could argue, well, hang on a minute, surely it's more disrespectful to say, well, you're not a worthy opponent, so I'm not even going to try. Um, so there's a really de- interesting debate in the literature about whether it is it shows more respect to play your best, even if you are beating the, you know beating the other team quite significantly, or whether it actually shows more respect to kind of take your foot off the, gar- the gas and um, kind of go a little bit easier. I mean, my answer to that is... I guess comes back to this concept of sport is can you then let's let's imagine there's two football teams playing and one is significantly better than the other and yet they're already kind of six goals up my view would be well if I was a coach I would be saying okay well do we want to bring on some substitutes to to give the kind of less experienced players a chance do we want to change our formation to try and try out new kind of patterns of play um and actually in a way you're as a, as a coach or a manager, you're kind of, you're increasing those rules, those inefficient means um, to reach your goal because you're saying, okay, well, if we change the patterns of play, can we still score the goals? Or if we're, you know, putting on different players, can we still score those goals? So you're kind of, in a way, you're kind of having your own mini game in itself. Um, I think that just carrying on playing, you know, as and, and absolutely annihilating another team, you know, 15 nil to me, is pointless. It, mm. it, it, there isn't any point in doing that. Um, I think in the example that you gave in terms of um, something like combat sports where there's a risk of injury, I think that may be a different matter. And I think that actually if, if, you, if you're setting up competitions whereby you've got two people of very unequal um, skill level and expertise, then... I think that, well, I would say that there's a there's a problem there in the structure of the competition. You shouldn't you shouldn't end up with a situation whereby, and this is why we have weight categories, isn't it? So you you don't have, you know, heavyweights against bantamweight because actually it's it's unfair. Um, yeah, yeah, and and what I'm talking about that this often happens in like amateur fights, and then you would have the coaches or the referee. They can always stop it whenever, it, and they do. Hmm. When it looks like this is this is not a good competition, or there is no real competition because the other is so much overperforming the other. So, I mean, yeah, the safety issue is obviously a completely different question than in a football match where nothing so bad happens if the result is twenty nil. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think when you bring in that kind of safety a- a- aspect in the the risk of harm, serious harm, then I think then there probably is a, a moral obligation for those involved to probably stop stop the fight, stop the competition. And so we talked about that some level of seriousness needs to be there, otherwise you cannot play sport. So if, if your opponent doesn't take it seriously at all. I think in tennis we have this uh, example of Nick Kyrgios. I don't know if you've mm, seen yeah. any of... There was like some media attention to that when he was intentionally he was sometime just walking away and mm. and and losing and and just stopped trying and and there was a big outrage about that so so there seems to be something sacred about you have to try yeah that was an interesting example because it is almost you know 
spectators and fans say, you know, competitors have a moral obligation to try their best. And if they don't try their best, um, then there's something kind of morally wrong with their actions. Um, The other example was around, um, I don't know if you remember, was it the 2012 badminton? Where the way that the form, the structure of the competition um, was formatted, meant that in the semi-finals, to 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 reach an easier route to the final, both teams were trying to lose because they felt that they would, yeah, they would get an easier match um, in the semi-finals in order to get to the final. So right. you had, uh, mm. I think it was um, the Chinese and the Koreans team that were both trying to lose points, and it became absurd. And and actually, both teams got. Um, chucked out of the competition as a result of that um, but actually I, again I would say that, that that's a problem with the structure of the competition you shouldn't end up um, with a competition where where competitors feel that it's in their interest to not try as hard as they can if for those that are creating competitions they need to make sure that they structure it in a way where there is a there is an incentive and motivation for everybody to try and do their best um, because otherwise, yeah, as you say, you, you know, you get these absurd cases where, in a way, there's a different motivation. There's another motivation, which means that you you need to try and lose matches, which is antithetical, completely opposite to to what sport should be about. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about being too serious then. So, some seriousness is required, but it can become too serious. So. I'm thinking about like in in the psychological uh, literature or sports psychology, there's now a lot of concern about athletes' mental health and mm. kind of how sport is over-consuming them and and kind of the negative effects on, on athletes' mental health and well-being by being involved in elite sport, for example. So um, is the culture around sport, are, we, are the messages that the athletes are getting kind of... Um, Telling them that you should be taking sport more seriously than you actually should. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's something um, seriously wrong at the heart of elite sports, and it is because it's all about it is so single-minded in terms of to be an elite athlete. Um, and it's and it's interesting because if you go back to you know the early kind of twentieth century where. There was a certainly in the in kind of the UK there was a real uh, culture of amateurism. This idea that actually you you basically just turn up on the day and you see how well you can play. Um, and then there was the, the the kind of the North American attitude, which was almost the opposite. It was like kind of no, you train, you you work as hard as you can, you try and excel. And there was a kind of at the beginning of the twentieth century, um, there was this real kind of culture clash between these two values. And and arguably you could say that they were opposite end of the spectrum now I think that we've probably gone too far the other way in terms of that that North American attitude of of um, excellence at all costs and that's not to say I mean there's obviously if, if, if you go too far down that route then that motivates athletes to cheat and to to break rules but even if you kind of limit it before that cheating and breaking rules I think it still sets up sets up a culture whereby 
it's it's all about excellence and pursuing excellence which you might say is a good thing you know to pursue excellence that's what we want in sport we want to see you know how skillful people can be we want to see how fast they can run or how high they can jump you know that pursuit of excellence in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing but when it's at the cost of everything else in terms of a good human life um, then I think you need to worry and I think that's where we've got um, in elite sport n- nowadays and it's and it's starting to change because actually and, you, and you, you've seen it more recently um, with athletes starting to talk about how that single-minded elitist approach has affected their their mental health has meant that they've really suffered in terms of um, other aspects of their lives now I, I've been involved in um, elite sport uh, not necessarily professional sport but certainly elite sport and um, I've seen that to get to the top you do need to be single-minded you need to sacrifice so many other aspects of your life in terms of um, your education career prospects family friendship you know people miss weddings birthdays anniversaries um, funerals all sorts of things and that is argue you know in the, the culture is well actually that's a sacrifice you have to make you have to miss your grandmother's funeral because you've got you know this really important competition um and and that to me is a real problem with elite sports and i hope i hope that that is starting to change now because it is it's so narrow-minded it's forgetting about actually it comes back to this question about what makes a good life it's a forgetting about these other important aspects of your life um at the cost of excellence in sport and and to me that's that's wrong um we need to we need to have a balance and we need to recognize that yeah you know sport in itself can be a good thing and excellence in this in sport is a good thing but not at the cost of of other important parts of your life and you are saying that maybe there are some signs that kind of that attitude would be changing but on the other hand like the competition in elite sport and and the money that is involved in elite sport and all of that seems to be just accelerating so i mean i hear you and and i'm a big fan of amateur sport myself but i'm i'm not sure if we are going to see a culture change and if and how and when that could happen I'd, I'd, I'd like to be optimistic because I'd like, you know, you you hear stories of athletes starting to speak out and you, you hear stories of people questioning the culture around elite sports. Um, I think that you're right. I think that it's difficult. It, it, it may be difficult to change because there are other competing factors such as, you know, commercial commercialism in sports um, and, professional sport i.e that people aren't doing sports for they're not playing sport for its own sake they're playing sport because actually it's a job um and they want to keep their job because it means that they're able to pay their rent pay their mortgage um so i i think you're right that it is going to be very difficult to tackle but i think that you know what what we do need to try and create is an environment where athletes have have a voice and to, to say hang on a minute you know this isn't this isn't right. I've got I've got other priorities, and we we are starting to see it in sport where um, professional sports where uh, players and athletes are having more rights in in, in sense of employment rights. Um, there's ideas around uh, you know obviously maternity pay, sick pay, um, 
special leave for kind of family issues. So there are signs that actually it is changing. Um, but I still think that there, that, yeah, you're right. I think there are drivers um, in terms of the commercialism of sport, which suggests that that it will take time for that culture to change. Yeah. And that actually brings us back to our, where we started off was about sport being trivial, but still important. So professional athletes and, and especially, for example, footballers who are coming from African countries to play professionally in the UK, actually they are supporting their whole family back home by mm. playing sport. So for these athletes, sport is not trivial. It's, it's essential Yeah, I think you you obviously have to um, separate out sports um, for its own sake and sport professional sport where it's effectively a job, um, because often mm. I guess that's that serious non serious debate about how serious should sport be taken is often um, mirrored by the kind of the play work debate. You know, are you are you playing sport if you're a professional? Or actually, is it just a job akin to any other job? Um, and I think that actually, as soon as as soon as you're being paid to play sport, then it probably should be seen as work, not necessarily play. You'd like to think that people mm -hmm. still enjoy their jobs. So you know, as an academic, I enjoy my job, um, and I and I do love what I do for its own sake. But I'm also rec I recognise that I'm being paid to do it as well um so i think that in that sense you have to you have to recognize you kind of you you um step over that boundary between doing sport for its own sake and doing sport for uh, a, a external goods i.e you get paid to do it um so that might affect that serious non-serious kind of uh, notion that professional athletes have to take their have to take their job seriously because if they don't get their contract renewed then they don't have a job um and so it maybe there is a slightly different attitude there than amateur sports that just do it for the love of sport but then i'm wondering like the rest of us who are not professional athletes like i'm doing my thai boxing and my running and it's uh utterly unimportant so nobody cares who what is the outcome of that But I'm I'm just thinking that for the rest of us that if you think how sport participation has been kind of taken up as a, a kind of imperative to keep yourself in good health and good fitness and 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 all these messages about you know being physically active makes you more productive and all that so kind of from the public health and 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 the social discourse point of view I think we are less allowed to be doing sport just for its own sake yeah i think that's a shame because it, it, and it comes back to you know what is the value of sport well there's a multitude of different values and you can say well there's kind of the intrinsic value of doing it for its own sake just because you kind of it's part of a good life um but there's all these other ex extrinsic values such as as you say you know you do it to keep fit you do it to make friends you do it because you you know you get some esteem from it or you you win some money from it or whatever it might be so there's all these other ext extrinsic values as well um and i think it's about for for me i think that as soon as you lo lose the intrinsic value so you're not doing it for its own sake you're doing it for something else um then that's that's a worry because 
if you're not doing it for own, its own sake, you're doing it for something else, then you're probably not um, appreciating sport really for what it, it is. Um, and even, okay, let's say that you're doing sport because you think that it, it makes you um, more healthy. It reduces your chance of long-term chronic conditions, um, although that's arguable, obviously, but, um, and you're not doing it because you, you, you enjoy it. Well, actually, in that, in that case, then surely go and find something else to do that you do, in, you do, do because you enjoy it and that gives all those other extrinsic um, uh, consequences as well. So I think that it's that intrinsic motivation that should always be the primary driver, even if you end up doing it as well for other external factors. Is there something we can do to try to preserve the intrinsic value of sport, the value of doing it for its own sake, when kind of the societal and cultural drives are towards instrumentalizing sport? Yeah, I think that it's about, again, it comes back to recognizing the triviality of sport and to think, well, not just sport, also everything you you do in life. And this is, you know, kind of a broader philosophical question around, you know, what gives life meaning? Um, Because anything that we and this is this also is something that Bernard Suits talks about at the end of his book The Grasshopper where he talks about well what gives life meaning because actually anything you do is trivial in the grand scheme of things so we're all going to die one way or another and therefore anything that we do doesn't matter but at the same time of course it matters because it matters to us at this point in time it matters to our friends and family in this at this point of time it might not matter in a million years time but in this space and time it does matter um and i think that therefore we need to always recognize that and this is why for me philosophy is so important because it forces us to confront those kind of questions those really difficult questions about what makes my life worth living? Um, what makes it? What makes my life worth continuing? Um, and we can always find meaning. And this is where sport, you know, speaking personally, as a teenager, you know, going through some really difficult times, sport provided me with that meaning because, and going back to what I said earlier, because it was so rule bound and it was so self contained, and actually it. It enables you to forget about other really complex things going on in your your life, and because you're just working towards a little a trivial goal at the time, but at the same time it gives you that that meaning to your life. Um, so I think that it's about it's about recognizing that, and it's about having those kind of conversations and always trying to step back um, and and seeing things in a much broader perspective. And my concern you know, to a certain extent, sometimes, especially with the advances of technology and things like Fitbits and, uh, you know, these devices you can wear that tell you exactly how many steps you've you've taken or how many miles you've run, is actually, you kind of lose that perspective because you're always looking at those quantifiable measurements and those numbers and actually you're forgetting, well, how does this fit in my life more broadly? You know, if I go out for a run... I'm actually just enjoying the sensation of of moving my body or I'm enjoying, you know, listening to the birds or I'm enjoying, you know, looking at that sunset. 
actually that richness, that qualitative experience of running is so much more than those quantitative numbers that, uh, you know, you, you see on your wrist at the end of a run. And I think it's, yeah, so my concerns around those kind of wearable technologies is actually it tries to reduce the experience of sport down to something that is 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 so anemic compared to the actual richness of 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 sport itself i fully agree on that with you and 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 being a runner myself that those are some of the issues that i often thought about and and how some runners are now very much fixed on the statistics that they can get from the watch that will dictate whether that was a good run or not i think there should be some other qualities that make you decide whether that was a good run or or a bad run yeah there's um there's a really nice paper by a woman called Pam Sailors um and it's 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 called more than a pair of running shoes and it's it's a really interesting philosophical take on the consequence the adverse or what she calls the revenge revenge effects of technology is where if you've got something like a you know your Fitbit and you're you, you know you say oh I'm going to do a, a 10k run tonight I'm just going to go out for a run and then you get to a point where you get home and you realize you've still got another 400 meters to go and you think okay well I've got home but I've got 400 meters to reach that kind of nice round 10k mark um, so then you go running around the block again and and she she says you know that's that's technology dictating to you what you're doing it's not you you know you wanted to go out for a nice run and you said oh i'm going to go for a 10k run and then you find actually it's just under 10k so you need to kind of keep going well you don't need to keep going at all you could just say look i've had a good run i've enjoyed it you know i've run i've run, run well tonight yes i haven't actually finished on 10k but so what um, and I, th- I think it's a really kind of interesting paper about the kind of the, what she calls the revenge effects of technology and how kind of technology bites back. Um, and I think that's something that we all need to bear in mind is, you know, we don't want technology to kind of dictate to us what we do. We want to have that control to still. Yeah, this yeah comment makes me smile. I also had a friend who wanted to get like 10,000 steps every day. And if he only had 9,000 500 by the end of the day he had to go and and walk around the block to get those steps so yeah i i hear that yeah and the 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 absurd thing apparently those 10,000 steps those 10,000 steps are are just picked out of thin air anyway you know it's it's just to kind of give an indication of keeping your body moving whether it's 8,000 steps one day or 12,000 steps Mm -hmm. another day it doesn't matter and yet you're right there are people that says right must (laughs) must do my 10,000 steps and only my 10,000 steps. Oh, I've done, I've just done 10,000. I don't need to do any more. I'll just sit down. <laughs> you know. This is the end of the part one of our discussions and explorations with Emily. In the second part of our podcast, we will move into exploring the ideas about authenticity and sport. What is the notion of authenticity for the existentialists? How can that help us understand some of the experiences in sport? What does it mean for the organization of sport? Is there something that we could do in in our sport culture more broadly to help athletes and players to be more authentic? Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on 
Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.